Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, it girl turned campaigner Paris Hilton speaks up about her stolen childhood, years of trauma and taking down the troubled teen industry. Steve Rose investigates the mysterious case of the Missing Academy Awards. And for years, depression has been described as a chemical imbalance in the brain. But is that the full story? Hannah Devlin examines the complex world of serotonin. Now, from the outside, Paris Hilton was a flighty socialite living the easy life. But her brand new memoir reveals she was, in fact, a troubled teen who'd been sent away to behaviour modification schools. Left with no education and still struggling with the trauma today, here she unveils a remarkable story to Zoe Williams. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. This article includes descriptions of sexual assault and mental and physical abuse, which some listeners may find upsetting. All of the things that every teenage girl would go through, going to school, going to the prom, going to college, I missed out on so much of that, Paris Hilton tells me. It would be natural to assume this was just the opportunity cost of her fame, the Shirley Temple of partying, she's been red carpeting so long that even if she's younger than you, she's 42, it probably feels as if she's lived longer. Of course, she didn't go to college. Those sequins weren't going to wear themselves to Coachella. In the beginning, Paris Hilton was famous because her parents were. And they were famous because of her great-grandfather, hotel tycoon Conrad Hilton. And the whole family was famous because of its wealth. As she moved into her late teens, she became a name in her own right. A model and it girl, the... OG Influencer, as she describes it, the first person on record to seek and attain payment for turning up at parties. This, at the time, seemed to seal her in the public imagination as a bauble, one of life's fripperies. 
Certainly, we didn't spend a lot of time pondering that it takes quite a lot of entrepreneurial moxie to recognise the value of your stardust and monetize it, especially when you're already minted. Hilton's gear change to global fame came in 2004, when a former boyfriend, Rick Solomon, released a sex tape filmed the year before that rapidly caught fire online. At this point, Hilton was already becoming known for the reality show The Simple Life, which she did with Nicole Ritchie. Two fabulous, pampered socialites slumming it in minimum wage jobs, living with a regular family in Arkansas. It was strangely compelling and memorable. I can still get a pin-sharp visual on Hilton and Ritchie trying to make onion rings in a fast food restaurant. That show seemed to fix her reputation as the punchline of a joke she'd actually authored. The simple life marked the dawn of the age of a certain type of structured reality TV – The next nearest thing was Laguna Beach, which didn't air until the following year. Hilton, obviously along with numerous TV execs, created what would become an endlessly replenishing genre, and yet managed to emerge from it the ditzy, clueless little rich girl. With sidelines in perfume, boutiques, beach clubs and other product lines, She started DJing in the 2010s and, unarguably, by then had created more wealth and notoriety than had ever been bestowed on her by the accident of birth. Granted, none of this would have shaken out the same way without the privileged start, but she's no Donald Trump character, sitting on piles of inherited gold and claiming to have made it. The late Baron Hilton probably put it most pithily when he said that he used to be known as Conrad Hilton's son, until he was known as Paris Hilton's grandfather. But none of that is why she missed out on her teenage years, has no education to speak of, and spent years battling so much trauma that I didn't want to think. She was going out, travelling doing all these things just to not have to think about what I had been through. It sounds so improbable, impossible even, for anything that bad to have happened in a family so scrutinised. But her teenage years were horrific. She's speaking to me over Zoom from Los Angeles, and we're talking about Paris, the memoir. She looks on the screen much as she does on its cover, blonde, glossy, flawless, features so strong and symmetrical that it makes her seem self-possessed and a bit remote, irrespective of what she's actually saying. Her friend Kim Kardashian once said, while they were making frittata and French toast coated with frosted flakes, I don't know anyone who parties as hard as you do and looks as good as you do. And that's as true now as it was any other year. In a story probably familiar to anyone with ADHD who grew up before it was common to get a diagnosis, Paris Hilton struggled at school, and the upsides of attention deficit disorder, we're so creative, we're constantly thinking, our minds move as fast as a race car, went unrecognised. My childhood would have been very different if I'd been diagnosed. I definitely wouldn't have been sent away.
she says. When she was 14, she was groomed by a teacher at her school, and her parents came home to find her in a car on the drive kissing a grown man. They were about to move from Bel Air to the Waldorf Astoria anyway, and they were worried, she says, to have a young girl in New York City at that point and thought I would be safer with my grandma, but they had no idea it was a teacher. So the Hiltons, having asked no questions about the incident, sent their oldest daughter to live in Palm Springs and moved with their other three children, Nikki, Baron II and Conrad. This isn't the horrific bit, by the way. This is just predatory behaviour resulting in a period of exile from the family. When she talks about it, Hilton acknowledges that it had a long tail. That was the beginning of me not being able to trust people, especially adults, she says. But her language is quite neutral and, if anything, very forgiving, particularly towards her parents. That generation, that's just how it was. You just didn't really talk about things. Yet straight after this, she manages to identify the flaw in her own argument. My mom was so young when she had me. She was only 19. She was like a kid herself. She was at an age where you were learning the whole time. It's true. This code of silence can't really be chalked up to generational differences. Her mother, Kathy Hilton, born in 1959, isn't even that old. In Palm Springs, she was drugged and probably raped. Her memories are fractured and fleeting. By a man she met in a shopping mall when she was 15. She never mentioned it to her grandmother or anyone else. Move past the easy assumption she writes in her memoir, that men are pigs and models are dumb. That's not fair or true or useful. Most men are basically decent, I think, and successful models travel all over the world. I mean, sure, I think men are decent, I don't think models are dumb, and I don't think travelling and being dumb are mutually exclusive. But I'm still surprised after these experiences. Plus, a few years later, being chased into a toilet by Harvey Weinstein and only just managing to get the door locked in time, that she thinks that. I just meant men are decent in general, in the world, she says, laughing. Then soberly, specifically in Hollywood, there's a lot of bad guys out there. It's the type of place where people try to take advantage of girls. So that was the backstory when she was finally brought back into the family fold in New York. She was in no mood for formal education and went a bit wild. Still only 15, she snuck out of the apartment to go clubbing every night, slept all day, stopped going to school. That was when her parents took an extraordinary decision to send her, aged 16, to what is euphemistically known as a therapeutic boarding school for, another euphemism, a behaviour modification programme. Today, with her husband, entrepreneur Carter Room, she has a newborn son, Phoenix. He was carried by a surrogate. Hilton says she couldn't get pregnant due to trauma, the legacy of abuse, which we'll come to. 
I assume she means tocophobia, a fear of pregnancy and giving birth, but that's not quite it. She would have loved to have been pregnant, was looking forward to amazing maternity looks, Beyonce belly among the roses photo shoot. This makes me chuckle, only in Hollywood. But after two years of IVF, it didn't happen for her. She concludes in her book that my mind and body had never fully healed and probably never will fully heal from the trauma I went through as a teenager. Phoenix's arrival has made her more understanding of her parents. Even though he's a baby, I'm already worrying about that one day when he's a teenager and he's going to sneak out at night. So it definitely makes me understand even more why my parents were so protective and so strict. This is your little baby. You don't want anything to happen to them. So I could understand why my family wanted me to stay home. They were just worried. She has her family carefully planned and ultimately wants two sons and a daughter. She will doubtless achieve this. There's very little left to chance when you have all your eggs in a row. But it strikes me as ineffably sad that her idea of the perfect family is the one she was raised in, without her in it, as it was so often. She says of her plan, I would love to have a girl next. I wanted her to have a big brother because I feel like if I'd had a big brother, a lot of the things that happened to me wouldn't have happened because I would have had someone to protect me from people. It's a naive, almost arrested perspective that parental care can be outsourced to a sibling if the birth order aligns. Hilton's boarding school experience started with two men dragging her from her bed in the middle of the night, handcuffing her and putting her on a plane to a remote part of the San Bernardino Mountains in California. I'd read about these places before, but never in such detail. Kids are underfed, underslept, subjected to a barrage of impossible rules. No looking out of the window without permission. No asking permission to look out of the window or go to the toilet. And baroque punishments. The list of prescribed conversations makes your eyes prick for these friendless teens so far from home. No talking about music, sports, television shows, movies, news events, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your clothes, your room, your school, or anything else about home. No mention of Marilyn Manson, no mention of candy, pizza, hot dogs, cheeseburgers, lasagna, McDonald's, Burger King or Wendy's. No talking about bikes, skateboards or inline skates. There were marathon sessions known as raps when kids were enjoined to verbally abuse one another to a screaming crescendo, typically centred on their disgusting personalities and sexualities. After hours of this, everyone crying and dehydrated, there was a forced group cuddling session, a repugnant insistence on rituals of fake nurture in an environment of every kind of cruelty. It sounds very like a cult, and indeed, SIDU, the organisation that ran the schools, originated from Synanon, a drug rehab programme created in 1958 that disintegrated into a violent cult. 
Hilton escaped three times. Each time she was caught and sent to a new institution that was worse. By the time she arrived at the final school in Utah, it was routine for the kids to be given invasive and painful cervical exams as punishment, to be locked naked in solitary confinement for 24 or 48 hours, to be sedated on a whim, beaten on a pretext. She spent 11 months there and came out just shy of her 18th birthday. She had had no education during these two years. All the time they weren't being screamed at, forcibly cuddled or punished, they had spent moving logs. It was known as wilderness therapy. Sidhu ceased operations in 2005. What's horrifying is the fact that it's still happening today, she tells me. It's a multi-billion dollar industry with hundreds of thousands of kids being sent to those places every year. It's heartbreaking to me that people could treat children like this. Now, hearing about so many things, the deaths that have happened, it's just heartbreaking. So, even though it's hard for me to talk about, I think it's so important for people to understand what's happening behind closed doors. Again, she finds ways to justify what her parents did, both in sending her away in the first place and all the times they sent her back, when her distress was so palpable. They brainwash the kids, and they also do that to the parents. They say, your daughter is a liar, she's just manipulating you. The Hiltons were also deceived, to an extent, by their own wealth. They assumed that the bad boarding schools were where foster kids were sent. Because these schools were costing so much, they must be humane. The moment I got out of there... It was the happiest day of my life, she tells me. I was so grateful, and I just made a promise to myself that I was never going to talk about this. This is not part of my story. I would pretend it never happened and just bury it there, basically. I just promised myself I would work so hard and become so successful that no one would ever be able to control me again. Only she and her parents knew where she had spent the previous two years. To everyone else, even her siblings, they held the line that she had been away at boarding school in London. Back in the Waldorf, she had plenty going for her. Modelling contacts from her earlier teenage years, tons of cash, a lot of business savvy. Awake, she was the girl who had everything the embodiment of a dream. But she hated going to sleep because she would wake up screaming from nightmares for the next 20 years. Her cultural standing was riven with very recognisable contradictions. On paper, people admired and were fascinated by her. But it was freighted with assumptions about her character. That she was trivial, airheaded, famous for being famous, narcissistic, Indeed, looking back, a lot of anxieties about the future, about the emptiness of branding, image and consumerism, a lot of social disgust around the concentration of wealth were mediated directly through critique of Hilton, of which she says levelly, I'm a human being so things would be hurtful when people would just assume, but I always loved when people underestimated me. I loved proving people wrong.
It was only when the sex tape was released on DVD that this gleeful schadenfreude found expression in a riot of slut-shaming, cynicism and voyeurism. People said she had released it herself, for attention, that it was all part of her plan to stay edgy. It was extremely painful, she remembers. I did not want to leave my house. I was just so depressed and so humiliated. That was just one night with someone who I was in love with, who I trusted, that was never meant for anyone else to see. And just the way the media handled it was so cruel, people villainising me for doing something that everyone in a relationship does. The irony, she says now, is that she became this icon of licentiousness when she wasn't even promiscuous. I was portraying this sex symbol vibe, but inside, I did not feel that way at all. And I did not trust anyone because I had such huge walls that I built around my heart. I didn't want to let anyone in, and I didn't want to be hurt, so I didn't want to ever give myself to someone. I thought, if you only kiss them, that's not a big deal. If something bad happens, or they cheat on me, it won't hurt as bad. It's amazing to think of how much values have shifted. I don't remember anyone back then talking about the morality of Rick Solomon, who sold the tape without Hilton's knowledge or permission. Today, under UK law at least, he'd be in prison. Neither Hilton nor the internet launched the idea of a sex tape, obviously. That was Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee in 1995. And it was literally a tape... But Hilton's did provide a kind of blueprint for how to turn a malicious leak to your advantage. However violated she felt by it, in public she was blithe, cameoing in a sketch about it on Saturday Night Live. She emerged both more famous and more in control of her own sexual objectification, much as Kim Kardashian did with her own sex tape three years later. Also, public shame has quite a short attention span, and as The Simple Life became a hit, Hilton enjoyed a pretty uncomplicated popularity. She was going out with Jason Shaw, an underwear model, but spending most of her time filming with Nicole Ritchie. This fun adventure with my best friend, I love her so much, she says. It looked as if she was living her best life. It was more complicated than that. She'd got pregnant accidentally and had an abortion, which threw her into turmoil. An intensely private agony, she writes. That's impossible to explain. The Hiltons are Catholic, so it's quite a big deal to disclose it, even now, 20 years later. She wrote about it keenly aware of the rolling back of Roe v. Wade, I think women should have control over their body and don't think anyone should tell someone what they should do. So many women have experienced it and there's so much shame put into it. I felt like I couldn't leave something like that out, even though it was painful to write about. In the past, Hilton's politics toggled between the toxic and the gnomic. She said she had voted for Trump in 2016, but says now that it was even worse. She didn't vote at all. Is that worse? Never mind that now. She also cast doubt on the women accusing Trump of sexual assault, telling Marie Claire, 
I think that they are just trying to get attention and get fame, which, apart from anything else, sounded a little bit rich. Now, she writes that she was intimidated by Trump. Probably most problematic is the cache of videos from a storage locker that emerged in 2007 with clips of her singing slurs in all the colours of the rainbow. She explains that she was young and drunk at the time the slurs were recorded and she has a later DUI conviction with a short prison sentence to back that up. Is she penitent enough to rebrand as a feminist? A progressive? I genuinely don't know. In 2020, when Hilton first spoke about her teenage experiences in public, it was a spontaneous response to Alexandra Dean, the director of the documentary This Is Paris. They'd set out to make something quite different. A puff piece, really. That was not the original premise of the film, she says, I felt like I had been underestimated for so long and I've created this huge business empire. I wanted to show all that I had accomplished. Six months into filming, they were in Korea and Dean stumbled upon Hilton straight out of a night terror. So I opened up to her about it and she just didn't understand. She was saying, is this real life or a nightmare? Since she started talking about her adolescence, Hilton has discovered a campaigning zeal and all I care about is changing the troubled teen industry, being able to use my voice and make an impact, go to DC, speak with legislators and senators. So it's important for me to make regulating therapeutic schools a bipartisan issue so that we can pass this bill. Another arguably less concrete action in 2021 was to collaborate on a non-fungible token, NFT, built around the message, the truth will set you free. She's heavily invested in cryptocurrency and crypto art, owns more than 150 NFTs and is one of a slew of celebrities currently being sued, along with Adidas, for allegedly promoting one collection, Bored Ape Yacht Club, without disclosing that she was being paid to do so. There's definitely a rum advertorial vibe to the conversation she and Jimmy Fallon have about Bored Ape. Whether her involvement is dicey or just idiosyncratic will be for some judge or the future to decide. By the time Hilton moved into DJing, her wealth was pretty head-spinning. $2.5 billion in fragrance sales alone by 2017. Again, it all looked like a dream life. Her success as a DJ, awards, a major residency in Ibiza, her $1 million rate for a set, apparently effortless. Partly because of her frenetic mode of speaking and writing partly because she takes a palpable delight in pretty things and pretty people, her caricature self, this gilded good-time girl, is insistently present. But, even though it looks like it's so much fun going out, she says, it's a lonely world and it's not a real life. It's hard to be in a relationship when you're never there. I was always just around the world, travelling so much, I never got the time to even get to know someone that well because I was always gone. Then, just before Covid, 
she met Room at a dinner. She remembers it in a sweet detail. The waiter asking whether there was something wrong with her untouched food and her saying, Nothing, I just don't like to eat in front of cute guys. It's so on brand, the flighty socialite shtick, but it also happened to be true. She thought he was cute and then they ended up married. To have someone who doesn't care about fame, doesn't care about going out, just the total opposite of anyone I've ever been with, it was just eye-opening, something I've never experienced before. It's like a real adult relationship. I'm impressed by her commitment to her own fairy tale, with its obligatory happy ever after. I think, one way or another... Whatever the privileges of her life, after all its sexual, intimate and institutional violence, I'd still be angry. I am angry. I'm sad. I'm angry at those schools for what they did. They stole my childhood. There's a lot of things I'm angry about. But I try to always be the sunshine. That formulation is so totally Hilton. She doesn't want to find the sunshine or angle towards it. She wants to be it. It distills all the yin and yang between ego and resilience, the vast material advantage but undeniable emotional disadvantage of her upbringing and the bizarre life it created. Poor little rich girl, my hard-ass New York mother-in-law kept saying while I was reading the memoir. Well, yes, I replied. She is a poor little rich girl. That was They Stole My Childhood. Paris Hilton on Teenage Scars, Sex Tapes and Having a Baby by Surrogate by Zoe Williams. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we have included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. 
she just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world, just running a couple of minutes late. And of course, the chaos of my life. I meet someone, I show my friend, they're like, mm, yeah, it's okay. Four weeks later, I'm sliding down the wall crying. One week later, I message my friends, I met you guys. This is how I dated 11 people in one year. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, an Oscar can only officially be sold for a dollar. But that hasn't stopped a small but lucrative black market. So, asks Steve Rose, where are all the Oscars that have disappeared? Read by William Vanderpoy. In March 2000, three weeks before the 72nd Academy Awards, that year's entire shipment of Oscars, 55 individually marked 24-karat gold-plated statuettes, mysteriously disappeared en route from the manufacturer in Chicago to Los Angeles. The story briefly became a showbiz sensation. The Academy set up a 24-hour tip line. The handling company offered a $50,000 reward. The FBI became involved. But the culprits were no master criminals. They turned out to be a couple of light-fingered but loose-tongued delivery workers who had stumbled on the crate and thought they had struck gold. They were arrested within days and the show went on. Had these thieves somehow been able to sell the Oscars on the open market, they might have been in for a shock. The going rate for 55 new Oscar statuettes is $55. Since 1951, all Academy Award winners must sign an agreement that they shall not sell or otherwise dispose of the Oscar statuette, nor permit it to be sold or disposed of by operation of law without first offering to sell it to the Academy for the sum of $1. The rule also applies to anyone who receives or inherits someone else's Oscar. Despite the Academy's rules, there is still a small but lucrative trade in Oscar statuettes. They are secretly sought, bought and sold by anonymous collectors. Some have changed hands for millions of dollars, and quite a few have disappeared without a trace. In fact, it's a pretty murky world. There is no official database of who owns each of the more than 3,200 Oscars so far awarded, or how often they change hands. I would say that approximately 150 statuettes have been sold, either publicly or semi-secretly over the years, says Caroline Ashley, veteran auctioneer and appraisal expert. For prices from approximately $10,000 to $1.5 million, and roughly a dozen lawsuits have been filed over potential sales of Oscar statuettes in recent history. The trade began in earnest in 1993, when Vivian Lee's family auctioned her Best Actress Oscar from Gone with the Wind for an eye-catching $563,000. Since it was a pre-1951 statuette, the Academy was powerless to act, but issued a statement saying it regrets the traffic in Oscars. The statuettes are symbols of recognition by one's peers of excellence in filmmaking. 
the Academy remains concerned and will consider all legal options open to it with regard to each sale. Many subsequent would-be sellers have fallen foul of those legal options. In 2008, for example, three heirs of silent movie star Mary Pickford, one of the original founders of the Academy for Motion Picture, Arts and Sciences, were blocked in their attempts to sell her 1930 Best Actress Award for Coquette and an honorary Oscar she received in 1976. The Academy successfully argued at trial that the agreement Pickford signed in 1976 covered both statuettes. Some Oscars would almost be worthy of a biopic themselves. Orson Welles' 1942 Best Screenplay Oscar for Citizen Kane, for example, was reported lost by his daughter Beatrice in 1988. The Academy issued her with a replacement, only for the original to resurface. Wells had left it with a cinematographer named Gary Graver, while using it as a prop in his movie, The Other Side of the Wind. Graver tried to sell it in 1994, claiming Wells had given it to him in payment, but Beatrice intervened and regained possession of it, which meant she now had two Citizen Kane Oscars. When she tried to auction the original in 2003, the Academy tried but failed to put a stop to it. Courts eventually ruled that she was permitted to sell the original, but not the replacement. Wells reportedly sold it for an undisclosed sum a few years later. Then, in 2011, it resurfaced and was auctioned for $862,000 by an anonymous seller to an anonymous buyer. Another courtroom drama unfolded over the sale of Judy Garland's unique juvenile Oscar, from 1940 for The Wizard of Oz, which was smaller than the standard issue statuette. It could be considered one of the most collectible items in movie history, except it was also reported lost by Garland's husband, Sid Luft, in 1958. Again, the Academy provided a replacement, which Luft tried to sell in 1993, 24 years after Garland's death. The Academy obtained a court order prohibiting the sale, so instead, Luft reportedly gave it to his daughter, Lorna. Then, in 2000, Garland's original 1940 Oscar appeared in the hands of a memorabilia dealer. Starting price, $3 million. As usual, the Academy obtained a restraining order, after which Luft and the seller denied actually having the 1940 Oscar. The mystery was never resolved. These kind of disputes seem to happen every few years. Just last month, a woman was blocked from selling David Ward's 1974 screenwriting Oscar for The Sting as part of repayment on debts owed to her by Ward. Instead, the courts ruled, she could only sell it to the Academy for $10, as was agreed by Ward when he received it. Pre-1951 Oscars continue to come up for legitimate sale on a regular basis, albeit without shedding much light on the trade. In 2012, a collection of 15 Oscars was sold at auction for a total of $3 million, for example. The buyers were unnamed and the seller was only identified as a Los Angeles area businessman with ties to the entertainment industry. Last July... 
Heritage Auctions sold cinematographer Clyde Diviner's 1930 Oscar for White Shadows in the South Seas, the second ever Oscar for Best Cinematography, for $228,000. The statuette's finish exhibits mild tarnish and minor rubbing. As usual, neither buyer nor seller were identified. Who is collecting them? And is there a hidden market? There are always rumours, says Ashley. It's pretty hard to do it out in the open, unless it is something that's pre-1951, she says. But mostly, it's because they're truly movie buffs. They love the whole culture. And if they have the money, they're going to try to find something on the secret market. Some buyers have gone public. In 2003... The magician David Copperfield bought Michael Curtis's Best Director Oscar for Casablanca at auction for $232,000. Reportedly, he kept it in his bedroom, claiming, without irony, objects should be where they do the most good. In what could be his greatest magic trick of all, Copperfield resold the statuette for more than $2 million in 2012. Another highly unanonymous collector paid a record $1.5 million for the Best Picture Oscar for Gone with the Wind in 1999, Michael Jackson. Other high-profile buyers have had purer motivations. Between 1996 and 2001, Steven Spielberg bought Oscars belonging to Clark Gable for It Happened One Night and Betty Davis for Jezebel and Dangerous for a total of $1.4 million. He donated all three statuettes to the Academy. Kevin Spacey did the same when he bought George Stoll's 1946 Oscar for Best Score for Anchors Away in 2001. So, how many Oscars does the Academy have in its possession? It declined to say. 20 statuettes are on display at the Academy Museum in LA, where this year's Oscar ceremony was held, although several of these are borrowed. Spielberg's Clark Gable statuette is on display, but not the Betty Davis ones. Where are the others? There are plenty of Oscars on view elsewhere. 27 of Walt Disney's can be seen at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, including his special 1939 award for Snow White, which came with seven little mini-Oscars. Catherine Hepburn's four Best Actress statuettes are in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London has Vivian Lees for a streetcar named Desire and Paul Schofield's for A Man for All Seasons. And fittingly, Frank Sinatra's Best Supporting Actor Award for From Here to Eternity is in the Sinatra Restaurant at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas. More intriguing are the statuettes nobody has seen for decades. Hattie McDaniel's Best Supporting Actress Award for Gone with the Wind, the first won by a black actor, though it wasn't a statuette but a plaque, was on display at Howard University in Washington, D.C. until 1970, when it disappeared. Olympia Dukakis lost hers, Best Supporting Actress for Moonstruck, 1988, in a 1989 break-in. The thief later phoned and demanded a ransom, but the exchange never happened. Marlon Brando's two, for On the Waterfront and The Godfather, the one Sachin Littlefeather refused to accept, 
Matt Damon's for Goodwill Hunting, Angelina Jolie's for Girl Interrupted, Frank Capra's for his documentary Prelude to War, are all missing. And a few years after Michael Jackson's death in 2009, lawyers admitted the estate does not know where the Gone with the Wind statuette is. Perhaps it is languishing, Raiders of the Lost Ark style, among the singer's many possessions. Or perhaps it is in the hands of a shady collector, along with all the other missing Oscars. Perhaps a master Oscar thief has been operating undetected all this time without anyone noticing. The Academy did learn one lesson from the ill-fated Oscar heist of 2000, though. If another shipment of Oscars somehow falls off the back of a lorry, it allegedly keeps a stock of emergency statuettes in a secure vault at a secret location, just in case. Let's hope they're well guarded. That was Psst. Wanna buy an Oscar? The Mysterious Case of the Missing Academy Awards by Steve Rose. Read by William Vanderpoy. Finally, drugs targeting the happy hormone serotonin have been widely used for depression for decades. But more recently, some scientists within the industry have started to question whether the condition is actually caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Hannah Devlin investigates. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Daniela De Silva is feeling good. Lying cocooned under fleece blankets inside a medical scanner, her eyes are closed and her mind is focused and remarkably unperturbed by negative thoughts. Three hours earlier, the 39-year-old yoga teacher and neuroscience student was given a dose of the stimulant drug dextroamphetamine, which is often used to treat ADHD. I'm having a serotonin increase. Oh, definitely she predicts, before entering the PET scanner. De Silva is a healthy volunteer in a trial using a pioneering brain imaging technique designed to measure serotonin changes in the brains of living people. Last year, scientists used the scan to obtain what they claimed to be the first direct evidence that serotonin release is blunted in the brains of people with depression. The findings added fuel to a fiercely fought debate over the role of the brain chemical, if any, in depression. Just months earlier, a high-profile scientific review caused a stir when it reached the opposite conclusion that, after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence for the idea that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. To many, it was news that the case for serotonin being implicated in depression was not already watertight. The idea of a chemical imbalance is embedded in public consciousness and has shaped the way we view mental illness. The main class of antidepressant drugs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, are widely assumed to work by boosting serotonin levels. So the suggestion that the way we discuss and treat mental illness might be based on shaky foundations, was disconcerting. But it also served as a wake-up call that this view of depression has failed to provide effective treatments for a substantial proportion of those affected. Serotonin is sometimes referred to as the happy hormone, conjuring up the image of a substance that swooshes through the brain, leaving a warm glow of contentment in its wake. 
In reality, its biological role is complex and extends to basic functions like the regulation of sleep, intestinal activity and the formation of blood clots. In the brain, serotonin acts as a chemical messenger between neurons, but also as a form of volume control that alternately increases or decreases the level of communication between other neurons. Put another way, serotonin fine-tunes the working of the brain, regulating how different parts of the brain communicate with each other, says Dr James Rucker, a consultant psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, whose research focuses on developing new treatments for depression. The so-called serotonin hypothesis of depression arose through pure serendipity. In the 1950s, doctors noticed that patients who were given a new tuberculosis drug, ipronizid, appeared unusually cheerful, euphoric even. The drug was found to boost levels of serotonin, among other neurotransmitters, by blocking an enzyme required to break it down. A small leap of logic suggested that if boosting serotonin levels made people feel better, perhaps a deficit was causing depression in the first place. Pharmaceutical companies were quick to deploy the line to market a new generation of blockbuster drugs, including fluoxetine, escitalopram and citalopram. Various lines of experimental evidence also supported the idea. Drugs that generate a huge serotonin release, such as MDMA, cause users to feel elated and emotionally connected, the polar opposite of depression. And when people who have previously suffered depression are given a diet that lacks tryptophan, the amino acid which is contained in protein-rich foods and that the body uses to make serotonin, they are more likely to relapse. But other studies have produced inconclusive and contradictory results. Most of the public felt the link had been proven, says Joanna Moncrief, a professor of psychiatry at University College London and lead author of the Critical Review. Most psychiatrists and scientists knew it hadn't. After assessing evidence from 17 previous studies, Moncrief and colleagues concluded that the case for a serotonin deficit being responsible for depression was unconvincing. The greatest advance we could have, she says, would be to stop thinking of depression as a medical condition. Moncrief views depression as an emotional reaction to external circumstances and says that, as a psychiatrist, she has always been able to identify an underlying cause in her patients. If you're in a depressed state, you're not able to look at your life very objectively and work out what's gone wrong, she says. Very often it is to do with debt, relationship problems, loneliness. I think mental health problems are social problems, she adds. Trying to treat them as problems of individuals doesn't work. Poverty, ill health, unemployment, bereavement and childhood trauma all considerably raise the risk of depression and these powerful determinants of mental illness are sometimes glossed over. But the argument that depression is therefore not a form of illness falls outside of the medical mainstream and also the subjective experience of many of those affected. This includes Rucker, who before becoming a psychiatrist experienced a severe mental health episode that left him in a place of darkness, despair and yearning for oblivion and death. 
When you suffer from a mental illness like depression, it's inexplicable, he says. I had a comfortable upbringing, a good education, my parents still love each other, I went to study medicine and then I was absolutely polaxed by depression in my early 20s. Moncrief's review prompted an overdue public reckoning for the serotonin hypothesis, but most psychiatrists had already moved beyond the idea that depression was caused by a simple deficit or that the underlying cause of depression is the same for everyone. Serotonin isn't going to explain all depression, says Professor Oliver Howes, a psychiatrist based at Imperial College in King's College, London. It's a complicated disorder, and there are probably several different subtypes. Howe says that progress had stalled due to the lack of any direct way to measure serotonin in the brain, meaning scientists had to rely on unsatisfactory proxy measures, such as blood tests, post-mortem brains, and putting people on tryptophan-lacking diets. People have been debating the question for decades, but it's all been based on indirect measures, he adds. Howes is one of the team pioneering the new PET scan, which The Guardian was able to observe again in a second follow-up trial. The volunteer, De Silva, is injected with a safe radioactive tracer that is detected by the scanner as it flows through her bloodstream, tracing out a 3D map of her body. The tracer is designed to bind to serotonin receptors in the brain, illuminating them as a colourful heat map on the scan. But when a serotonin surge occurs, a fraction of the tracer molecules are kicked off the receptors and the signal drop-off indicates how much serotonin the brain is pumping out. We can't put a pipette into the brain and take a sample, says Howes, so this is the closest we're likely to come. In research published last year, Howes and colleagues compared serotonin levels in 17 patients with depression and 20 healthy volunteers. The two groups didn't show a difference in their baseline level of serotonin, but when the participants were scanned again after being given a dose of dextroamphetamine, the healthy group experienced a significantly bigger change, 15% versus 6%, compared to the depressed group. Howes' PhD student emails me after the scan to confirm that De Silva's intuition was correct. She experienced a 48% increase in serotonin release. You're getting a measure of how much serotonin release there is, says Howes. Our study is the first direct evidence that serotonin release in the brain is blunted in people with depression. The paper was a first step and needs to be replicated in a wider patient population. But Howes believes the technique could be crucial in understanding why current treatments do not work for everyone and eventually pave the way for better medicines. While current treatments do help a lot of people, they don't work for everyone. Some people can't find any treatment that helps, so we really need to understand more about what's going on in the brain that leads to depression. Successive clinical trials have confirmed that SSRI drugs are effective for around two-thirds of patients. But what is puzzling is that, while these drugs alter serotonin levels in the brain almost immediately, they typically take two to four weeks to have a clinical benefit, leading to questions about how they actually work. Professor Catherine Harmer, 
director of the Psychopharmacology and Emotional Research Lab at the University of Oxford, has been investigating this phenomenon for the past decade through a series of cleverly designed experiments. Whatever antidepressants are doing, we don't think they're simply affecting mood, she says. From an evolutionary perspective, Harmer says, our brains are hardwired to be highly alert to threats in our environment and to prioritise paying attention to dangers. She sees depression as a case of this basic survival instinct gone awry. When people are depressed, they have a negative filter and are more likely to notice negative information and that reinforces negative experiences, she says. If you're only receiving negative information, your hope and pleasure is not prioritised. Nobody really wants to just survive. Harmer's research suggests that the availability of serotonin shifts the way we process emotional information at a subconscious level, and this has a cumulative impact on how we feel. In one study, Harmer showed participants images of faces with a range of emotions – happy, sad, afraid – at different intensities. The images had been morphed on a computer with a neutral face – so they ranged from full happy to a barely perceptible Mona Lisa-like smirk. After just one dose of an SSRI, the threshold for detecting negative emotions increased. They needed to be more overtly negative to be interpreted as a negative emotion. The opposite trend was seen for faces with positive expressions. Another experiment found that people were less likely to recall negative information after a single dose of an antidepressant drug, although they did not report any change in mood. It was as though the antidepressant added a positive bias filter that subtly changed how people experienced the world at an unconscious level. This suggests that antidepressants may work in a surprisingly similar way to what cognitive behavioural therapy aims to do at a conscious level and could explain why a combination of medication and therapy tends to be more effective than medication alone. By refocusing a person on positive information in their environment, they begin to respond to these positive inputs and slowly begin to feel better. This tallies with how Rucker describes the role of antidepressants in his own recovery. I do lots of things to maintain my health, he says, reeling off a list that includes exercise, yoga, meditation, years of psychotherapy, but also antidepressants. They're not the whole answer. They get you to the point where you can get out the front door and do those other things to help yourself. As the latest science reveals new insights into the biology of depression, it is clear that serotonin is just one part of a complicated jigsaw. Depression isn't a chemical imbalance that can be neutralised in a simplistic sense. There are external social and environmental factors that can trigger depression and others that can be harnessed to help people get better. Drugs that target serotonin can tilt the balance in favour of recovery, but a wider range of options are needed. That was The Great Serotonin Debate. Do depression treatments work by boosting the happy hormone? By Hannah Devlin. Read by Colleen Prendergast. 
Before we go, we wanted to let you know that Shante Joseph is back with pop culture with more sharp-witted analysis, special guests and insights into what's trending. Each week, she will host new guests and look into brand new trending pop and internet culture stories everyone is talking about. Pop Culture is a 12-part series with new episodes every Thursday. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Rachel Louise Miller, William Vanderpoy, and Colleen Prendergast. And presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers were Ellie Bury and Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.